And good afternoon to all the Carolinas. This is the Pete Callender Show. And once again, I'm Brad Slager filling in for Pete on the last day of his vacation here. He will be back with everybody tomorrow. And uh, he might be regretting things a little bit that he's not in today, considering all the huge news. But uh, we're going to go over all of the big breaking news from last night and uh, give a couple wrinkles to the storyline to see if we can uh, pin down a few details. Here's the thing. Last night, if (laughs) you've been under the house all evening or if you're just waking up, it was about 6.30 p.m. here in Florida where I'm situated that FBI agents conducted, well, some are calling it a raid, some are calling it a warrant that was being served, but about uh, two dozen or more agents from the FBI were at Mar-a-Lago, came in, uh, didn't even announce from what we've heard to the Secret Service ahead of time that they were arriving. This uh, one of the first curiosities to come out of this story, but uh, they came in and they obtained a number of boxes. Some were saying 15 or so boxes of documents, as well as gaining access to the safe on location at the compound of Mar-a-Lago. Now, Donald Trump is out of town. I believe I want to say he's in New York City at Trump Tower when this transpired. And there's been a lot of furor and uprage about the event coming from both sides of the political spectrum. I uh, I was out at dinner last night and sitting in the tavern when the news broke and uh, just watching it unfold for about an hour or so, came home to watch social media basically go into meltdown mode. Leftists, conservatives, everybody weighing in, everybody having their own opinion about things. The left, of course, is cheerleading, thinking this is it. This is the downfall of Donald Trump, finally. And there's been a number of conservative pundits who are pretty boldly making proclamations of things and promises. We even saw some of the uh, Republicans on the Hill declaring that uh, this is going to have ramifications after November with the election should the republicans take power in dc as expected so yeah there was a lot of outrage and a lot of excitement but i'm basically sitting in between these two positions these two poles (laughs) and i'm basically waiting for a little bit more information because what what took place here doesn't seem as hysterical as everybody's making it out to be, but at the same time, it also doesn't feel like it necessitated this type of action. So there's a little bit of a paradox involved, at least as far as my perspective on things. I'm, I want to see what the warrant was. I want to see a few other details first before I really have a big reaction to this. The, um, the thrust of this, the entirety of the FBI coming into Mar-a-Lago last night had to do with official documents and classified information that was allegedly taken out of the White House by Donald Trump upon his departure from the Oval Office and such. They're saying that these were uh, classified property of the government that he took with him and that they were re-obtaining on behalf of the government and official offices that should have these documents. If that's the case, um, you know, it, it 
could very well be a valid scenario. But at the same time, did the FBI act in a reasonable fashion in doing so? That's part of the question here. Because if you're looking for a series of documents and such that actually belong with, let's say, the National Archives, you know, these are official state documents and not in possession of Donald Trump or classified for that matter. Defense Department, State Department, things of that nature. Sure, it would make sense to re-obtain these. The question, though, comes here. First off, just to clarify, this really seems to have absolutely nothing to do with the January 6th commission. This FBI movement last night was not connected in any way with that investigation. It's not, not affiliated. It's not part of what they're looking for. So this is an independent decision being made. But to send in agents to go after these documents all the way to the point of breaking into the safe that was on location. It sounds both extreme and almost like a fishing expedition, possibly, you know, like they were looking for something. Now, some reports have said that there were specific documents in the warrant and they only obtained those documents contained therein. However, getting into the safe seems a little more extreme than necessary. Why that would be the case? What would make them suspect any of the documents being sought were there? Um, and I think I saw a report was a Don Jr. Somebody affiliated with the family stated that the safe was actually empty that they had gotten into. But here's some other questions that need to be asked about this. And... It begins with a warrant itself. Why did why was there this jump automatically to go to an FBI case of serving this warrant? Because if it were really a case of these documents needing to be returned or being sought, uh, usually a subpoena would be enough to do so serve the subpoena and then demand a return of these documents if Trump and or others on location at Mar-a-Lago are in possession of these. Um, you know, you, going over that into the action of serving a warrant seems excessive. Seems a little bit higher up the chain as necessary. And other questions arise, too, regarding the actual judge who signed off on this. It seems to be a case where, I don't want to say they were overstepping, but somebody of a level, maybe not, uh, he's probably not sitting at a level that would maybe necessitate going after a president, for instance. It's... Uh, it's a case where this individual was a U.S. magistrate, not an Article Three judge, as it's pointed out. His name was Bruce Reinhardt. And it just seems almost as if this were a rubber stamp scenario where it came across his desk and he passed it right through. Okay, so he's, as I said, he's not part of an Article Three level service. 
not appointed by the president. His position is not one that's confirmed by the Senate. And while they do serve federal warrants, the feeling is that this should have been pushed a little bit higher upstairs. So questions abound right there. And I'm going to go a little bit further into this in the next segment, just to give a few more details and shading on this whole story, because it's really complex, but it's not, uh, not entirely clear at the same time. And welcome back to the Pete Callender Show here on WBT News Talk 1110 and 99.3. And just a reminder, if you need to see or listen to any other shows in the archive section, you can go to WBT.com to listen live as well. And if you need to get updates on programming, head over to social media and it is at WBT Radio. I'm Brad Slager filling in for Pete and we've been discussing... The big news from last night of the raid on the compound over at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. And been going over some of the details as far as the judge behind it, as I just uh, mentioned, who seems to be a lower level than maybe necessary for a presidential search warrant to be served. Uh, There's a little bit of another wrinkle, however, involving this judge. It came from the uh, Miami Herald today, as a matter of fact. This is the magistrate judge by the name of Bruce Reinhardt. And the Herald has <laughs> come up with a pretty interesting development as far as this goes. Um, turns out that the this judge who signed off on the Trump raid, on the warrant on Mar-a-Lago, has previously worked for Jeffrey Epstein. He was a rep for Epstein's pilot and Epstein's secretary. He quit his job as a prosecutor investigating Epstein to go work for him. That's who this uh, same individual was. And that that was a rather famous story down here uh, when the Epstein drama was developing in our area. So this is the same judge connected with all of this. Not to mention the fact uh, that it's been reported also that the same judge, he was a donor for Barack Obama, just to to further call into question (laughs) motivations and such. But um, I think there's something else that's been revealed here as to what is in play, what is taking place, and why it took place in the fashion that it did. Because as I said before, this isn't a January 6th connected investigation. And they uh, decided to forego a subpoena process in order to re-obtain the documents that they went into the compound to collect. Uh, The explanation for this could be here. Um, It comes from Mark Elias, who is one of the go-to lawyers for the Democrat Party. Uh, Elias is all across the country. He's been occupying himself the last couple of years primarily as um, filing and fighting against, filing suit in order to battle a lot of the election laws that have been passed across the country. 
you know, the new laws that were passed following the pandemic in order not to codify a lot of those things. Elias has been out there battling these things. I, uh, I covered him a few, you know, about a month or so ago where he was actually claiming that the, uh, requirement of individuals to get a mail-in ballot and have a valid signature on the application was racist. That was one of the arguments they were putting out there. So just to give you an idea where, where Elias falls, he's definitely a Democrat operative as far as lawyers are concerned. And Mark Elias says this in regards to what took place. He says the media is missing the really, really big reason why the raid today is a potential blockbuster in American politics. Okay, not, not to get too hyperbolic there, Mark, but a little, might be a little bit early before we get to those descriptions. But what he said uh, in this, he also when he said this, he basically uh, offered up also a uh, screenshot of a U.S. code. This is uh, U.S. Code 2071 regarding the concealment, removal, or mutilation of federal classified documents. And the way the code reads, you know, it, it speaks to whoever willfully or unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, or destroys or attempts to do so with the attempt to carry away any record proceeding. And gives a whole list of items included. And then it, uh, you know, basically says, or in any public office, or with any judicial public of the United States, and it says they shall be fined under this title or imprisoned, not more than three years or both. And then in Part B, that was regarding, you know, uh, any kind of activity that would, you know, eliminate or eradicate said documents. Let's say if you were in the Oval Office and started destroying documents. Part B, however, is kind of the focus here because it says whoever is having the custody of any such record shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than three years. So basically, they're talking about now the removal. And then there's this passage that seems to be the linchpin in what Mark is pointing out. It also says, and shall forfeit his office and be disqualified from holding any office under the United States. So it appears this is what the focus is. Because as we know, January 6th commission is all about the prevention of Donald Trump to be able to run for president once again in 2024. And the January 6th commission has been rather neutered on that front. They've not come up with uh, any tangible or impressive proof, let's say, of coercion or Donald Trump leading the charge to have people come in there. In fact, the FBI and other government offices have said there was no coordination. And all of the, quote, bombshell, unquote, revelations from that committee have been pretty neutered. They've been bombshells, but they haven't detonated, in other words. So Elias might be tipping the hand of the Democrats in the left here because when he says this could be huge news and highlights this particular aspect where he would be disqualified from holding office further. That seems to be what could be the motivation behind all of this. But again, it remains to be seen. There's a lot to unfold here and, and be revealed. So my recommendation might be, you know, let's pump the brakes a little bit. Let's not get too excitable yet and wait and see what officially comes out of this. 
Friday and welcome back to the second half of the first hour here of the Pete Callender Show on WBT Radio. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 FM. All right. With all the news going on, we have so much else taking place across the country. And one of the bigger stories that's uh, centered around the upcoming midterm elections is how much the voting landscape has been shifting, especially over the last couple of elections, but specifically as far as the Hispanic vote and issues regarding Hispanics and also this administration's treatment or lack thereof (laughs) of the Hispanic individuals. And so to go over these issues, got an individual joining me right now. I'm very excited about this. I've been wanting to speak with Jorge Bonilla from the MRC Newsbusters site. And uh, Jorge, you're part of MRC Latino. Is that correct? That's correct. First and foremost, thank you for having me on, Brad. I head up MRC Latino, which is the division of the Media Research Center uh, and of Newsbusters that monitors and, and covers and exposes Spanish language media. I think Univision, Telemundo, CNN and Espanol, among other outlets. And that's what we do. It's the same work that you've seen for years at Newsbusters. But at MRC Latino, we, we shine a laser focus on Spanish language media. Yeah, this is, uh, as I just mentioned on the intro, this is a growing issue. Now, down here where I'm at in South Florida, this has always been kind of preeminent, but not so much on a national scale as it is the last couple elections. But, Jorge, i got to take some exception here. You don't refer to your division as Latinx. What is going on there? We well, I can I can assure you we have never done that. We <laughs> intend never to do that. Latinx is the the obnoxious millennial descendant of of the artificial identity and the synthetic identity is a, is a, probably a better term that we've come to know as Latino. That's actually a great way to put it. That I, yeah. I love the way you just put that synthetic exactly because, um, you know, I don't want to get into like, you know, all, you know, my best friends are Spanish people. Like they say, you know, some of my best friends are black, but living in South Florida, like I do, I've just been immersed in the culture of Hispanic residents. They've been friends of mine all my life. Some of my right. best friends right now are, I don't know a single Hispanic down here that embraces that term, even in interest it's like outright rejection and i'm curious if you could pinpoint why the left and specifically the democrats are so intent on pushing this particular phrase on latinos it's it's well we have to go back a little bit um in order to understand the the synthesis of this term latino is, is as an identity is something that came about in really since the 40s, um, if you look at the scholarship of Mike Gonzalez from the Heritage Foundation is absolutely critical to understanding this. He wrote a paper for the Claremont Review of Books called The Invention of Hispanics. And he also devotes uh, a chapter in his book, uh, The Plot to Change America, to this very issue of how the Hispanic identity was manufactured and was manufactured out west by certain left-wing individuals in order to sort of, quote-unquote, bring together all the, all the people of, of Spanish-speaking descent. You have Mexican-Americans on the West Coast. You have Puerto Ricans and Cubans and some Spaniards on the East Coast. 
And the idea was to bring everybody together under an identity that was centered on victimhood and on grievance and sort of bring everybody together under this identity in order to affect political outcomes. And that's how this whole concept of the Hispanic vote was manufactured. And if you look at poll after poll after poll, people reject the term Latino. They reject it. Only only about 10 or 11% of the people use it at any given time. Most people either use Hispanic or they, they fall back on whatever their place of origin is. Um, and with Latinx, that term uh, was created in the mid-2000s by academics in order to uh, sort of create a little identity umbrella for people of synthetic sexual identities, whether you know they were gay, lesbian, bisexual, whatever the case might be, so that they could, anybody outside of that sexual and gender binary, so to speak, so that they could identify within that umbrella. And that became Latinx. And over time, as, as the left went crazier, there was talk of bringing everybody under that umbrella. And sort of what was this minority thing within a minority, sort of make that the main umbrella. Um, when you already had a synthetic identity that people were resisting, now you got this other one that was even worse. So... The blowback, and that seems to be the surprising part, is that there yeah. was no real exclusion taking place. There, it's almost like they were coming up with a solution where there was not a problem. Right. There, there never <laughs> was kind of gendered language, right. and it naturally it, it, is Latino is although it's male gendered, that is the gender neutral term to describe everybody. Right. But, um, you know, people rebel, sort of rebelled against that. I wanted to make a thing about, oh, this is this is oppressive. This is this enforces the gender binary. We need to get outside of that. And so they came up with Latinx and sort of. Yeah, so they're basically everyone. fighting a language is what it yes. comes down to. Yes. And sort of trying to <laughs> Which is ridiculous. But you mentioned the polls, too. And I saw one. And this is the one that surprises me with regards to how the Democrats adhere to this so much. The one poll. Right. I saw a couple months ago, about 40% said not only do they reject Latinx, but a candidate that was pushing Latinx would be one they would tend to not vote for. And this seems like a self-defeating policy within the Democrat Party for some reason. That makes no sense. Right. Because, again, Latinx, it's one of those things that it's, it's sort of a red flag. If you have somebody that uses the term Latinx, then more than likely, if you, when you open the hood and look under it, there's going to be a whole bunch of other crazy things uh, that, that they're going to embrace that are going to be poisonous to Hispanics. So that's why most people, when they're polled, you know, they're open and they say, look, if they say Latinx, chances are they're going to support the sexualization of children in schools, which we know is a big issue here in Florida, and they're going to support abortion up until birth and maybe shortly thereafter which is something that, that Hispanics are horrified by and on a host of uh, on a whole host of other issues so when you see somebody openly use Latinx in their communication there's a high likelihood that they have also signed on to the rest of the liberal policy poopoo platter and that's why they are so soundly rejected by members of the community yeah it's it's an amazing thing to watch that the it almost seems like the Democrats have been taking Hispanics for granted 
for so long that when all of a sudden these social complexities rear up regarding Hispanic culture and their reaction to certain things, they almost seem shocked and they don't know how to react to this. Right. All right. Um, or if you can hang on for the next segment, we got to take a break right here, but I got a lot more to go over in a short period of time. Welcome back to the Pete Callender Show here on WBT. Brad Slager filling in for Pete one last day. And pleasure to have joining me here, uh, Orhe Bonilla from Media Resource Center Latino. And Orhe, I wanted to ask something specific about uh, media development taking place. Over the last couple of elections, like we were talking about, the GOP right. has been making some more inroads as far as drawing the Hispanic voter in, and it's from a variety of cultures. It's one of the mistakes the Democrats have made is that they regard Hispanics as a block and not individual cultures, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Mexicans, Venezuelans. And that's one of the things the GOP has successfully done the last few elections, especially here in Florida, where they address needs of those cultures and drawing voting responses out of that. The Democrats seem to be in a little bit of a panic as a result, and now they have gotten into um, one of the recent developments is that they're buying up a number of Spanish language radio stations in order to push a Democrat message. How is that going so far? Um, well, th there isn't uh, any new movement on uh, on the FCC side of things. You're talking, of course, about the uh, acquisition of what I've labeled the Radio Soros. That is the 18 uh, <laughs> yes. Univision radio stations that uh, were recently sold to the Latino Media Network, which is a, uh, a company that was founded by two Obama operatives on the political side and on the administration side. Uh, it is financially backed by George Soros. The board is composed of a lot of prominent Democrat Hispanics, like Henry Munoz, who was one of the founders of uh, Latino Victory, Eva Longoria, actress Eva Longoria. You have um, Al Cardenas, the former Republican Party of Florida chair, who these days is more uh, is, is better known as Mr. Ana Navarro. He sits on the board. And <laughs> yes. it, it is a power play. It is a control play born out of fear. Although uh, there is a monopoly of Spanish language media currently. When it comes to news content, opinion analysis, as it sits right now, you have Univision, you have Telemundo. On a smaller scale, you have CNN and Espanol, some of these other networks. There's no Fox News. There's no, you know, there, there's no giant conglomerate of, of Spanish language content out there delivering conservative content. You have some emerging outlets like Americano Media, like El American, like Vose Media, and some others, right. but... You don't have that giant conglomerate. So there's this freak out uh, as, as Republicans continue to perform well amongst the Hispanic community. Uh, there's this freak out. Uh, you saw in the wake of the 2020 election, this focus on Spanish language disinformation. So right. in order to combat that and control the narrative in, in some of these most Hispanic districts, uh, the Latino media network borrowed $60 million of George Soros's money and sunk it into this venture, which if I may add 
what they're basically doing is rehashing the former failed Univision America footprint. Because it used to be that Univision got into the talk radio business. And they set up a left-wing Spanish language network at the height of Barack Obama's popularity. When he had mm. just come off of winning, I believe it was 72% of the Hispanic vote. And they failed. And they had, if, if you look at their footprint, they had stations in Miami, Chicago, New York City, Los Angeles, Fresno, uh, Dallas, Houston, McAllen, San Antonio, Las Vegas. This is the same footprint of radio stations that went really? over to Radio Soros, with the exception of a couple of music stations that are going to stay formatted the same. What they're basically doing is reviving with a lot more money and now run directly by Obama operatives. They're rerunning the, uh, the Univision American Network, plus they si they're silencing Radio Mambi. Which that was like the, the surprising one. part. Yeah. That, that's pretty amazing because that was the anti-Castro radio yes. station for decades down in Miami. And for that to turn over, that turned a lot of heads in the Miami marketplace. And a lot of uh, Hispanic residents in Dade County have risen up basically in opposition to this, to this power move right. on the radio. One of the more I mean, amusing parts, though, has been in reaction to this this growing tide of Hispanic voters moving to the GOP, it, there's, there's a very infantilizing aspect to the reaction of this because they're saying that these Hispanic voters are so easily swayed. I've even seen stories where they were suggesting QAnon was getting on the radio with these misinformation campaigns, which itself is pretty amusing. It's just kind of reductive, really, when you think about the voters in that fashion. And I'm hearing it from Hispanic leaders, amazingly enough. Right. Um, well, and, 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 you know, it all goes back to what we were discussing in the, in the previous segment about the synthetic identity. Mm -hmm. And, the, you know, they manufactured the synthetic identity that was centered on, on grievance, on identity grievance, and that made immigration the, the be-all, end-all, defining identitarian issue. And unfortunately, the GOP went along with that for many years. The Republican established, they didn't know any better. So they went to La Raza, and they saw Calle, how do we talk to Hispanics? Oh, just, you know, be strong. They seem, to be, um, they seem to be learning. <laughs> At least that's well, the good, encouraging well, thing. They so I, I got to cut you off there, Jorge. I'm sorry, but um, I'm going to recommend anybody and everybody go check you out over at MRC Latino for more on this. Thanks.